Well, hello everybody. It's great to see all of you. Do me a favor, grab your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 is where we are today. And as you turn there, first of all, I want to say hi to all of you in orange. And we are so grateful to hear the good news about Jay. And we continue to pray for him. And so grateful to be with you this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. God is good. Absolutely he is. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can grab one in the seats that are near you. And that is yours to keep if you don't have one. We would love for you to take that home. And as you find your place in Acts chapter 4, uh, I need to say something real quick as, as we, before we jump into this message here. Uh, I actually need to apologize for something that I said a couple of weeks ago that ended up being insensitive and I was not aware of it. And now I am and I, I truly feel sorry for it. But a couple of weeks ago, uh, you may remember we did a message on hospitality and love and we were out of Hebrews chapter 13 to do that. And in that message, in order to uh, illustrate this principle of hospitality that we want to be about as a church, uh, I said in that message that we want to be the type of church where uh, people know it's safe to wear shoes on the carpet. And what I meant by that is we want to be the type of church where uh, people know that they can come exactly as they are. Well, in making that comment, uh, what I didn't realize is I was kind of giving the impression off that if you are someone who makes people take their shoes off uh, as they come into your house, that you are not being hospitable. And I have since found out that uh, that is anything but the case for some of you. And in all seriousness, in some cultures, actually, uh, particularly some Asian cultures, uh, it is a sign of hospitality to ask you to take your shoes off when you enter into a house. And it has nothing to do with keeping their carpet clean. Uh, it is because uh, when you take your shoes off, uh, it gives you a sense that you are welcome here and you, and you can stay here as long as you want. They want you to make this place feel home. And I didn't realize that. And so uh, I, I said something that was insensitive. And I am truly sorry for that. And if I offended you, I want to let you know I am so sorry. That was not my point at all. And if in the future there is something I say like that, not, not regarding the word of God, because the word of God is going to offend all of us from time to time. But if there is something culturally that I say like that, uh, that, that in some ways is insensitive without me realizing it, do me a favor. Let me know about that. Because truly, I, I never want anything to get in the way of the word of God. I never want anything to get in the way of the gospel message. And for those of you who did reach out to me in this most recent incident, I want to thank you because the spirit in which you did it you were so gracious, you were so kind, it was a model of how to do that. So thank you very much for that. So that's what I want to say up front here. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be today. I'm going to pick it up here in verse 1, and uh, we're going to read through the first 22 verses or so, then we'll pray, and then we'll see what God has for us. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 1, this is what we read. It says, The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching to the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so that the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, as was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or in what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name given to heaven under heaven given to mankind, by which we must be saved. Verse 13, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. 
and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then confer together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let him go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Father, as we come before you in prayer, God, um, I, I'm just reminded there's, there, there's just a lot to pray for right now, Father. We think of those still recovering in Houston, God. We think of those uh, who are in Florida and uh, the unknown of, of, of what devastation uh, is going to happen to them, God. Uh, Father, right now, I, I just pray against uh, Hurricane Irma, God. I pray that you would allow it to take a different direction and you would allow it to weaken, Father, and that ultimately no one would be harmed for, uh, by it. Uh, God, I pray especially for the churches both in Houston and Irma, in Florida right now, God. I pray that you would allow them to continue to rise up and show the love and hospitality that you have called us to show, and God, that through that many would come to know your name. And I pray, God, that that would be the ultimate outcome of both of these things, that many would come to know your name. God, we thank you for the good news about Jay, Father. We thank you that you were so gracious to him in that way, Father. And we pray for continued recovery, Lord. God, I pray for Matthew and his family as they continue to mourn the loss of their dad. And God, I pray that you would allow, uh, again, just the details to come together for the funeral, God. And I pray that you would just show them your comfort during this time. And Father, as we turn our attention right now to your word and see what it has for us tonight, God, I pray that you would uh, speak through me, that you would not allow anything that I say to get in the way of uh, the truth that you want to get across, Father. And I pray that we would be changed as a result of what we hear, not because of what I say, because of what, but because of what your Holy Spirit uh, says and does here in this evening, in this place. And so, God, we thank you for all of this, and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. So we begin here today, we're going to put a phrase on the screen, and this is a phrase that is familiar to many of you, and what I want you to do with me tonight is I want you to repeat this after me, okay? The phrase is this, I'm going to say it a couple of times, don't repeat it first, and then I'll tell you when to repeat it, but the phrase is this, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. We're going to break this up into two parts, okay? So repeat after me, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Okay, let's sound a little bit more alive. Ready? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. One more time. I have decided to follow Jesus. Well, no turning back, no turning back. In today's message, brothers and sisters, I have some good news and I have some bad news. I have some good news and I have some bad news. What do you want to hear first? The good news or the bad news? Please say the bad news because that's how I've practiced it. What do you want to hear first? Bad news. Okay, thank you. The bad news is, men and women, that according to every major recent study, Christianity and the church along with that is on the decline in the United States. The bad news is, according to every major recent study, Christianity and along with that, the church is on the decline in the United States. The bad news is, that according to every major recent study, you and me, we are a dying breed in the United States. This is according to a book that re was released recently called Churchless. 
And Churches was a book that was written by the Barna Group. And the Barna Group, in case you don't know, is a group that really devotes itself to studying religious trends in America. And in their most recent major study that they released, they found some very interesting and some sad statistics. And I want to share just a few of them with you. The first thing that they found is this. Uh, only 49% of Americans, according to their studies, uh, indicated that they have attended church at least once a month regularly. Only 49% of Americans say that they attend any sort of church, that's a Protestant church, a Catholic church, you name it, at least once a month. It's the first time since they have done this study that this number has dropped below 50%. In addition to that, they have found this. They have found that the number of Christians who have not attended a church service in the past year has gone from 30% in the 1990s to 33% in the first 10 years of 2000 to 43% in the most recent study. The number of Christians who have not attended a church service in the past year, that includes major holidays like Christmas and Easter, has grown exponentially over the last several decades. Now these two statistics themselves would be disturbing, but what was most disturbing is what happens when you break these statistics up by age group. And when you break these statistics down by age group, here's what you find. You find that only although only 28% of those ages 70 and above would identify themselves as a non-Christian, that number jumps to 48% of those between the ages of 15 and 33. 48% of those between the ages of 15 and 33 would identify themselves as a non-Christian. What is especially disturbing about that is that this is the generation, of course, that's getting married. This is a generation that's having kids and raising families. And if they are not Christian, then they are not raising their families as Christians either, their kids as Christian. And so if this trend continues, as our population ages, what are, we're going to see is we're going to see fewer and fewer and fewer people begin to identify themselves as Christian. And with fewer and fewer, fewer people identifying themselves as Christians, there are going to be fewer and fewer people to sit in the seats of the churches in the United States, which means there are going to be fewer people to dedicate their time and resources to our churches, which means that in the next several years, the next several decades, we can anticipate the closing of many churches in the United States. And along with that, we could see perhaps the irrelevancy of Christianity in our country. So that is the bad news. The bad news is, according to every major recent study, Christianity is on a decline in America. You and I are a dying breed. That's the bad news. So what's the good news? Well, the good news, men and women, is that none of this means anything to our God. The good news is none of this means absolutely anything to our God. That's the good news. We are beginning a new sermon series here at Friends Church. It's called Momentum. And I know this, I say this for every single sermon series, but this time it really, really is true. I don't think, I can think of a sermon series that I've been more excited for in my time here at Friends Church than this one right here. And the reason why I'm so excited for this sermon series is this sermon series is all about defying the odds. This sermon series is all about defying the trends. Here's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks here at Friends Church. There is a book in our Bible that I had you turn to. The book is called Acts. And the book of, called, book of Acts, in case you don't know, is a book that is all about the history of the first Christians. It's all about the history of the early church. The book of Acts begins right after Jesus' death and resurrection. Actually, it begins right after Jesus leaves this earth, ascends into heaven. And it ends 30 years after that event. And the book of Acts tells the first 30 years 
of the Christian faith, the first 30 years of this church that Jesus left behind. And really what the book of Acts is about is the book of Acts is about how this group of 120, and that's all that can be considered Christians when it first started out. There are only about 120 people committed to the Christian cause when it first started out. The book of Acts is how, against all odds, this group of 120 people, all of the same nationality, all localized in the same city, Jerusalem, grew over the course of 30 years to tens of thousands of people. And how this early church laid the foundation for what would become, still today, these statistics notwithstanding, still today, the world's largest religion. And this book is all about the commitments that this early church had that allowed it to be the force for good and the force for God in this world. And what we are going to do over the next uh, several weeks here is we're going to study what it was about this early church that allowed them to grow in the way that they did. And really what it comes down to is we're going to study the commitments that these early, these early Christians had. Because when you study the book of Acts, you see that there are about six or seven commitments that the early church had that allowed it to grow from this group of 120 to the, to the worldwide impact, the worldwide religion that we see today. And so every week we gather in the next several weeks, we're going to take a look at one of these commitments. We're going to see them in the book of Acts. And we're going to see how the church used these commitments, how these commitments caused the church to grow. But I want to make it clear to you, this series is not a history lesson, okay? It's not a history lesson. In this series, we don't want to be just hearers of the word. We want to be doers of the word. And so the reason we're doing this series is each week as we look at one of these commitments that the church had, we're going to seek to apply them to our church even more. And as we become, about, become more about what the early church was about, I don't see any reason to believe that God can't do the same thing in our day that he did in the first century. I don't see any reason to believe that God can't do the same thing in 21st century Yorba Linda that he did in 1st century Jerusalem. And I truly don't see any reason to believe why God can't reverse these trends and win this nation back for Jesus Christ. And that is why I am so excited about this series. And in this intro message today, what I want to do is I want to lay the foundation for what we're going to see in the next several weeks. Because I believe in addition to these commitments that are going to unfold in the course of this series, if you were to ask me why the early church grew, I believe that there is one characteristic they had more than any that allowed them to be used by God in the way that they were. And this characteristic is what I find here in the story that we read in Acts chapter 4. The story that we're looking at today in Acts chapter 4, it actually begins for us a chapter earlier. It begins in, in chapter 3 of Acts. And in Acts chapter 3, we learn that one day, very early on in the Christian movement, and I'm talking about within the first two months of Christianity, two months after Jesus' death and resurrection, so the very first days of the early Christian movement, we read that one day, two of Jesus' disciples, a man by the name of John and a man by the name of Peter, who became actually the leaders of the early Christian movement after Jesus ascended into heaven, one day they're walking by the temple in Jerusalem. And as they're walking by the temple in Jerusalem, we're told that they come across a man who is disabled. And this man, we're told, has been disabled from birth. He's been lame from birth. He is unable to walk. And he is old for this particular time period. He is 40 years old, 40 plus, which is pretty old in this particular day and age. 
And we are told that for every day, for practically 40 years, this man has been sitting near the temple begging for money to support himself because he can't work in this particular time period. And so as Peter and John walk past, this man does what he always does. He asks for some money. And Peter and John say something to this man that's amazing. They say to him in Acts chapter 3, they say, listen, we don't have silver and we don't have gold. But what we do have is this. And they tell this man in the name of Jesus to walk. And guess what? This man does. Peter and John perform a miracle. They do what they had seen Jesus do on numerous occasions while he was still on this earth. They heal this man. And for the first time in his life, he is able to walk. Well, as I said, this miracle took place near the temple in Jerusalem. And the temple was a very crowded place on most days. And so as this miracle takes place, there's a crowd of people who see it happen. And so they flock to Peter and they flock to John because they want to see the power that Peter and John have. And they want to know more about this Jesus in whose name they had just healed. And so Peter and John all of a sudden see this huge crowd that is gathered in front of them. And so they use it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And so they preach what might be called an evangelistic message. They preach a message where they tell this crowd about this Jesus. Well, as we open up in Acts chapter 4, we see that among this crowd that is gathered here to listen to Peter and John is a group of people who are not very happy at what they are hearing. In verse 1, we read about the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. These were the religious leaders of that day. And they are not happy at this message of Jesus that Peter and John are preaching. Why? The answer is obvious, right? It's because these were the very people, these were the religious authorities, the very people who were actually responsible for Jesus' death two months earlier. These are the people who hated Jesus so much that one night they gathered together and they put into place a series of events that ultimately led to the crucifixion of Jesus. And no doubt when Jesus had died, these men had thought that the movement surrounding Jesus would die with him. But what they see in the preaching of Peter and John is that this movement has not died. In fact, it seemed to grow strength. And not only that, but these miracles that Jesus performed, which they had actually attributed to the hand of Satan, these miracles were now being performed by Jesus' disciples, by Jesus' followers. And so they grow concerned. And so they decide to do to Peter and John exactly what they had done to Jesus. They arrest him. And they make Peter and John stand before what was sort of the Jewish Supreme Court of that day, a group of people known as the Sanhedrin. And those of you who know your Bibles know that the Sanhedrin was actually the court that sent Jesus to his crucifixion. They were the court that had accused and, and convicted Jesus of blasphemy that ultimately led to his death. And so as we see Peter and John dragged before the Sanhedrin to defend themselves, our reaction is we're really scared for them. We're really nervous for them. Because listen, if their leader Jesus, the Son of God, couldn't prove his innocence in front of this court, then what chance do these two fishermen have? And if indeed Peter and John end up sharing the same fate as Jesus and they are executed, then what is that going to mean for this early Christian movement? And so we're scared for them as they stand before the Sanhedrin. And if you were their lawyer, if you were their counsel, and you had the chance to advise Peter and John as they stand before this court, how would you advise them? Well, I know what logic would say. I know what common sense would say. And it would say, Peter and John, whatever you do, don't talk about Jesus. Whatever you do, downplay your faith. Don't talk about Jesus to the very group of people who had had Jesus executed. 
If they ask you how you healed this person, say that you healed him in the name of God. That, that's, that's true, right? Just whatever you do, don't mention Jesus. That's what logic would say. That's what common sense would say. But is that what Peter and John do? Well, let's pick it up again in verse 8 and see. This is this speech that Peter gives as he stands before the Sanhedrin. And this is what it says. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who is lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Verse 12, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Uh-oh. Looks like Peter fired his lawyer, right? <laughs> Rather than downplay his faith in Jesus, what does Peter do? He doubles down on his faith in Jesus, right? In fact, this speech right here, I really believe that this is probably one of the greatest speeches in the entire Bible. And there are two things that stand out to me about this speech. First of all, as you can see, this speech is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Rather than downplay his faith, Peter just continues to proclaim Jesus. In fact, there are three things that Peter ends up saying about Jesus in this passage. First of all, he makes it clear that if they want to know how this man was healed, he was not just healed in the name of God. Peter doesn't take the easy way out. He says, no, this man was healed in the name of Jesus. And then I love this. He adds this in verse 10. By the way, this is the very Jesus who you guys crucified. So he makes it clear that these, this man was healed in the name of Jesus. Second, Peter makes it clear that Jesus is the cornerstone of their belief system. Jesus is the cornerstone of their faith. That's what you see in verse 11 when Peter says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And many of your Bibles probably make it clear in verse 11 that that's actually a quote from an Old Testament passage. It's a quote from a psalm, Psalm 118, which was written hundreds of years before Jesus. And in Psalm 118, it talks about this particular stone that one group of builders who are building a building that they end up rejecting, they don't like it. But then another group of builders come along and they look at this same stone. And not only do they decide that they're going to use this stone in their building project, they decide that they're going to use it as the cornerstone of their building project. And the cornerstone was the most important stone of any building because it was the first stone laid. So it was a stone that set the direction for the whole rest of the building. And what the early Christians saw in Psalm 118 was a prophecy of Jesus. You see, Jesus had been rejected by the religious authorities. But what the religious authorities didn't realize is in rejecting Jesus, they had actually rejected God, God, had rejected God and Jesus was now going to be the cornerstone of this whole new faith that God was building. So that's the second thing that Peter makes clear. He is the cornerstone of our faith. But it's the third thing that Peter says that stands out to me the most. Because Peter makes it clear in verse 12 that it's only by putting your faith in Jesus that you can be saved. And that's what he says in verse 12 when he says salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name than Jesus. And this is the one that to me is the most brash. Because remember who Peter is saying this to. He's not saying this to an ordinary group of Jewish people. He is saying this to the very group of people who were responsible for Jesus' execution. To the very group of people who hated Jesus so much that they sent him to the cross, he is saying, hey, this man that you hated, just so you know, if you want to have any hope of going to heaven, if you want to have any hope of seeing God, you need now to put your faith in him. I mean, what Peter says here is unbelievable. 
It goes completely against logic. It goes completely against common sense. So why would Peter do that? Well, the answer is easy to, that's easy to answer. The answer is because the message of Jesus, men and women, is the only message we have. The message of Jesus is the only message we have. We don't believe Jesus was an ordinary man. We believe Jesus is God in flesh. He is the clearest representation of God here on this earth. The message of Jesus is the only message that we Christians have. And in a couple of weeks, in fact, we will see that one of the commitments that the early church had was to preach Jesus no matter what. Jesus is all over the book of Acts. And we will see how if we want to have see God do the same thing in our time period that he did 2,000 years ago, that we at this church have to be even more about Jesus. And we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But that's the first thing that stands out to me. This speech is all about Jesus. The second thing that stands out to me, and I've already touched upon this, but I want to call it out. The second thing that stands out to me is just how bold Peter is. Just how unashamed he is. I mean, as you read Peter's words here, do you sense any hint of apology whatsoever? Do you sense any hint of backing down? Do you sense any hint of fear? Not at all, right? Peter is bold here. Peter is unashamed. Peter is unapologetic. He's bold. He's unashamed. He's unapologetic. And we're not the only ones to notice that. The Sanhedrin noticed that as well. Look at verse 13. It says, when they saw the courage, and that Greek word courage could also be translated boldness or confidence. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. The Sanhedrin can't make sense of the boldness of Peter and John. They're, they're fishermen. They don't have anything above a high school education. How in the world can they be so bold? And I want to make it clear to you that Peter and John were not the only Christians who were bold. You go all throughout the book of Acts, and you will see every single one of these early Christians. They were bold for the sake of Christ. They were bold for the Christian faith. And if you were to pin me down, and if you were to ask me, Chris, what was it more than anything that led the early church to become the force for God that it did, I would say it's this right there. It is their boldness. It is their courageousness. It is their confidence to proclaim the name of Jesus no matter what. That's why the early church became the force for the world that it became. You know, I mentioned at the beginning of the message that statistics and trends, that they just don't mean anything to God. And the reason I say that is because, you know, what we face in 21st century America, men and women, is nothing. It's nothing like what these early Christians faced. Do you know, do you know how much early Christianity had going against it when it first started out? Do you know how high the deck was stacked against these early Christians when the faith was just getting going? No self-respecting bookie in Vegas would ever put any money on the Christian faith in the first century, ever growing beyond just a, a few hundred people and, 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 and dying out in just a few years. No one. Christianity had nothing going for it when it first started out. Let me just tell you very quickly, let me just tell you some of the things that Christianity had going against it. First of all, I've already mentioned this. It was unbelievably small when it started out. 120 people. 120 people dedicated to the Christian faith at the outset. To give you a perspective of how small that is, in just the bottom floor of this worship center, I'm not talking about the wings right here, just the bottom floor right here, there are 777 seats. 
In the bottom floor of this worship center, there are six and a half times more seats than there were people committed to the Christian cause when it first started out. Christianity was unbelievably small. Secondly, Christianity was unlike any other faith that had existed up until that point. You know, Christianity was born into a world where it almost required that you had some sort of physical representation of your faith here on earth to, to, to indicate what you believed in, to, to, to show your God to the people around you. And every other religion had something physical like that to represent their God. Judaism, of course. Judaism had the temple in Jerusalem, the house of God that people traveled to two times a year. The Roman religions had temples and statues of their gods literally all over the place. The Eastern faiths had idols that they had carved out of silver and gold that they had in their houses, that they had in their front yards that they would worship. Every other religion had something physical to represent their faith. Christianity had none of that. Christianity didn't have a temple because they taught that every believer was a temple of God. Christianity didn't have statues and they didn't have idols that they created because they were told that those were blasphemous and they were told that they didn't need them because they could go directly to God on their own. In fact, did you know that because of this, the early Christians were actually often accused of being atheists. They were accused of not having any God at all because there was nothing that they could point to on this earth to represent their God. Christianity was unlike any other religion at this time. And then thirdly, quite simply, the beliefs and practices of the early Christians were simply considered strange. They were considered odd. Did you know that some of the first Christians, there were rumors going around that some of the first Christians were cannibals? You know why they were considered cannibals? Because some people had attended their meetings before and they said they participated in the ceremony where they ate the body and they drank the blood of their God. Which when you think about it is kind of weird, isn't it? In an age where it was taught that there were many ways to God, the Christians taught that there was only one way to God. And by the way, the only way to God was to put your faith in this man that they believed was a God. But he wasn't just any man. He was a convict. He was a prisoner. He was someone who had been executed by the authorities of that day. But these Christians taught that this man had come back from the dead. Though, by the way, you should know that you can't really prove that because he's no longer here on this earth. He has ascended into heaven. I mean, the Christian beliefs at that time were considered weird. They were considered strange. Christianity had nothing going for it in its early days. But look at God, what God did with it. Look at all that God was able to do with the faith. How was God able to do so much with these early Christians? Well, I think there are a lot of answers to that. But I know God couldn't have done anything without their boldness. God couldn't have done anything without their courage. And if there is one thing that I think we in the American church today are lacking. I think we're lacking some of the boldness of these early Christians. I think we're lacking some of the courage of these early Christians. You know, one of the things that I, I do uh, being a pastor is I like to listen sometimes to sermons of, of pastors at other churches. And I do that for a few reasons, but one of the reasons I do that is I like to get a sense of what is being taught at other churches. And sometimes this can be a very frustrating experience for me. Because to listen sometimes to, to pastors at other churches, you almost get the impression that the mission that God has given the church in America is to never offend anybody. That the mission that God has given the church in America is, is to never step on anybody's toes and to apologize for what the word of God says and to apologize for the message of Jesus. And I got to be honest with you, that doesn't make any sense to me. Because what exactly are we apologizing for? 
You know, the verse that stood out to me more than any of this passage is that verse 12. When Peter declares that the only way to salvation is through Jesus. And if that verse is true, and I believe it is, then what that verse tells me, men and women, is that there are a lot of people in this world who are not saved. And there are a lot of people in this world that we are not going to see in heaven. Really what that verse tells me is that there is a sickness, there is a disease that has pervaded this world. And those of us who know Jesus Christ, we have the only solution. We have the only antidote to it. Why would we apologize for that? I mean, by way of analogy, can you imagine having a loved one dying of cancer? And one day you stumble across the cure for cancer. You're out in your backyard, you see this mysterious plant grow, and you know immediately this is the cure for cancer. And can you imagine having the cure for cancer in your hand, and then seriously debating whether or not you're going to share that cure with your loved one? Because, you know, you don't want to offend them. Maybe they like their cancer. Maybe it runs in their family. Maybe their mother and their grandmother and their great-grandmother, maybe they all died of the same cancer and it's a part of their heritage and you don't want to assume that they want to be cured from your can- their cancer. Can you imagine seriously having that debate within you? And yet all the time we do that with Jesus, don't we? What is it, men and women? What is it that makes us so embarrassed about the message of Jesus? What is it that makes us so fearful to to share the message of Jesus with those around us? As I look at the early church, at least on the outside, they had none of that embarrassment. They had none of that fear. Why? I think it ultimately comes to this commitment they had. They had a commitment to follow Jesus no matter what. They had a commitment to, to do what God had asked them to do no matter what. Uh, anybody else said. Look with me at verses 18 and 19 of this passage. So as you read on in the story, you see that the Sanhedrin, they decide that they don't want to keep Peter and John anymore. They're going to release them. They're not going to arrest them anymore. But, but before they release them, they give them this warning. And you see this warning in verse 18. It says, Then they, the Sanhedrin, called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So they release them, but they say, You can never speak again in the name of Jesus. Now how well do you think that's going to go over with Peter and John? Let's look, verse 19. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. Verse 20, as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. Let me read verses 19 and 20 again. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes? To listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And there you see it. That's the commitment that led to their boldness. No matter what, they were committed to Jesus Christ. I'm not sure that the same can always be said about us. I'm not sure that the same can always be said about me. You know, as I have examined my Christian faith, uh, and, and I do that quite a bit, here's what I found. I have found that I want to follow Jesus. Absolutely, I do. But I have also found that I want a lot of other things in this life as well. I want a good reputation. I want to be well thought of. I I want to be well liked. I I don't want people to think that I'm weird. I, I want to be popular. And I know that every time where I'm in an opportunity to share my faith with a neighbor, with a friend, with a loved one, I know that I risk those things. I know that I may not be well thought of. I know that I may not be liked. I may know that ultimately I may risk even losing that relationship. And I want Jesus. 
But I don't want any of those other things to happen either. And so I'm sad to say more often than not, in those situations, you're very bold pastor on Saturday night and Sunday morning. I grow a little bit embarrassed. And I grow a little bit fearful. And I become the exact opposite of bold. And if we are going to win our nation back for Christ, men and women, we have to overcome that. We have to overcome that. And that's why as we head into this new sermon series, I want to issue you all a challenge. And the challenge is this, and we've done things like this before, but this sermon series is about seven or eight weeks. And every single one of us in this room, we have someone in our lives that we know doesn't know Jesus. And it's the person who always comes to your mind when we issue these sort of things. In fact, God is bringing the same person to my mind right now. And I think there is a reason why God always brings the same person to our mind. It's because God know, because this is the person. God has placed this person in your life so that you can be the person to share Jesus with them. And before the end of this series, here's my challenge. That you would step out in boldness. And you would finally share Jesus with that person. You would finally talk to that person about Jesus Christ. And I want to warn you, it may cost your reputation. It may make someone think that you're weird. It may ultimately cost your relationship with that person, but that's okay because that person is dying of cancer. That person is dying of sin. And we have the solution. We have the antidote. And if you're struggling with how to, how to get that foot in that door in order to share the message of Jesus, can, can I suggest to you, follow the example of Peter and John in this passage. Remember how this story started out, right? It started out with a miracle. Actually, it started out with what Peter calls in verse 9, an act of kindness. It started out with an act of kindness shown to somebody. And more often than not, in the book of Acts, that's what you find. If you read through the book of Acts... Look at all the evangelistic speeches. Look at all the times someone begins preaching about Jesus. And then look a couple of verses earlier. And more often than not, you will find that what precedes these sermons is a good deed, is an act of kindness. It's as if the act of kindness is what got these Christians the foot in the door to share the message of Jesus. And there's a reason for that. People can argue with our views on things. People can argue with the Bible. But you know what they can't argue with? They can't argue with good deeds. They can't argue with good works. And that's why if you want to share, uh, reach your office, if you want to reach those you love for Jesus, here's something really novel. Just be ridiculously nice over the next couple of weeks. Just be ridiculously kind to people over the next couple of weeks. As you're driving into Starbucks on, on Monday morning, as you're driving to work on Monday morning, why don't you text everybody and says, hey, I'm headed to Starbucks. Uh, would you like anybody? It's, it's my treat. When you overhear someone having a, a tough conversation with someone else in your office, why don't you come up to them afterwards and say, hey, listen, couldn't help but hearing. If, if you want to talk about that, just so you know, I'm here. I'll, I'll take you out to lunch, my treat, but only if you want to. This week, why don't you buy your boss? Why don't you buy your coworker? Why don't you buy your, your son's new teacher? Why don't you buy your daughter's new coach? Why don't you buy the guy who makes your sandwich at Subway a little gift card with a little note attached that says, thank you for all that you do. God bless you. Why don't you be really nice this week? And when someone says to you eventually, and I promise you they will, when someone says to you eventually, hey, why did you do that? Unashamedly and unapologetically say, because Jesus tells me to. Because Jesus wants me to. 
That's how America is going to be won back. It's going to be won back one conversation at a time. One soul at a time. As I was preparing this message over the last couple of weeks, there were two thoughts that I had come to my mind at the same time. The first one is this. I have never been more hopeful for the church in America than I am right now, truly. I have never been more hopeful for the church in America than I am right now because I was reminded of what I said at the beginning. This doesn't mean anything with God. All God needs is 120 people. 120 people committed to his cause. That is all God needs. I know that in this church this weekend, we have 10 times that number. So I have never been more hopeful for the church in America. But I had another thought as well. I have never sensed the urgency more than I have right now for the church in America to stand up. Let's be honest, men and women, our nation is a mess. <laughs> it's just a mess. And I say to you unashamedly and unapologetically, our nation needs us because they need Jesus. And who are we called to be? We are called to be Jesus. We are called to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And so the nation needs us. The world needs us. And guess what? Satan knows that. And that's why Satan is attacking the church. That's why he's trying to close the doors on as many churches as possible. Well, you know what? We are not going to let that happen here. But it's going to take every single one of us. And so I go back to the statement that I said at the beginning. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Is this the cry of our hearts, men and women? Is this the cry of our hearts? Are we willing to lay down our pride? Are we willing to lay down our ego? Are we willing to stop living in fear of what other people say when we try to give them the only solution to eternal damnation? Are we willing to risk awkwardness and embarrassment to tell others about Jesus? Are we willing to, to sacrifice whatever it takes, our career, our reputation, our time, and our resources to advance not our own kingdom, but to advance the kingdom of God, to advance the reputation of Jesus? Are we willing to say, I have decided to follow Jesus? No turning back, no turning back. Is this the cry of our hearts? If it is, and I would ask you right now, would you do me a favor, would you stand with me? If you call yourself a follower of Jesus and you want to be, your life to be about this, would you stand with me? And once again, would you repeat after me? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Again, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Together now. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. One more time. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. This week, let's live like that's true, and let's see our nation be won back for Jesus Christ.